because when he was candidate Trump, he said things like, you know, we made this country, meaning uh, white America, not necessarily black. But for myself, I think if you're not burying your child in the ground and turning around and walking away, it's not an inconvenience that you can't deal with. Our moral duty to the taxpayer requires us to make our government leaner and more accountable. We must do a lot more with less. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. The Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, Wednesday, it's Hump Day. Happy Hump Day, everybody. Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast on February 22nd, 2017. Uh, Thank you for listening as always. I know I have some very loyal listeners out there, so I appreciate it. Um, a busy, busy, busy news day. It always is, always is. Um, and that's why we record late, because there's just so much we could get to. So you're probably listening to this on Thursday, but we are recording the podcast on Wednesday. And a big show for you today. We did an interview. I like doing the interviews. And to be honest with you, I like going along with the interviews. And I'll tell you why. You get more information out of people when you open them up. You know, TV, you could go 10 minutes and you really don't get much out of them. On radio and on podcasts, you could go as long as you want. could go an hour, which I did with Daniel Blanchard, inner city school teacher. He's been on the program before. He's a WS veteran, American Federation of Teachers, really good guy. I never met him, but uh, talked to him on the phone many times for a couple of years and um, really cares about these students. We have a big story tonight on education accountability because a a USA Today story about a a ProPublica report came out yesterday and basically shows that there is a a severe problem in the classrooms. And so we talk about that with Daniel Blanchard. Interestingly, later on in, uh, in the interview, towards the end of the interview, we're talking about just the generation of people uh, these days and kids. And, you know, this is someone who, and he told me in the interview, he's not a Trump supporter, did not vote for Trump. But he he sees in President Trump someone who gets it, someone who's real. Um, and so that was interesting in the fact that he said, listen, um, these kids today, they expect participation trophies. There's no accountability. And, um, and frankly, he's afraid for the future of the country, as am I. Maybe it's better for me, but it's not good for the, uh, the country overall. So we get into that with Daniel Blanchard, a really great interview coming up. And I'm sure there will be as great as reaction of that interview and feedback from that interview as there has been to this immigration story that we released last night. So we put up NeilAcruiser.com, and we added to it today. Uh, there we updated it this morning at about 10 o'clock, a little after 10, um, when my newsletter came out, my uh, first Caruso's Commas newsletter. And if you uh, didn't do so already, you can sign up on NeilAcruiser.com. This way, you get 
the real deal news straight to your inbox and what you need to know. Uh, because uh, we're going to just tell you the the very important things that are going on in the nation. And so immigration at the forefront of the debate since pre- now President Trump, uh, then candidate Donald Trump, uh, announced his candidacy and brought immigration right to the forefront. So the Department of Homeland Security yesterday, as we went over, we went over the key points in the memo, issued two memos enforcing immigration law. Really, all it is is enforcement of immigration law. It's not anything extraordinary. It's enforcing the law. Department of Homeland Security Secretary General John Kelly made the moves yesterday. Uh, So those key points are on the website. But what we did was this morning, and so if you got the newsletter, you saw it, um, we had to add some more examples and stories that are coming out today. So it's a long article. But it's very, very important and informative, and that's what we tried to do. So in addition to the policy, which you've probably read by now on neilacruiser.com, and that he's deferring dreamers, which I want to get to. You're going to hear from an angel mom in a second. Let me get to some of the statistics that I didn't go over in grave detail yesterday. But I have a uh, section on the article, Illegal Immigration Statistics. And I have examples in there as well. So I'm just going to give you the highlights here. Sanctuary cities have 300 jurisdictions in the U.S. In fiscal years 2010 to 2014, 121 aliens were released from custody and later charged with a homicide-related offense. In fiscal year 2015, 15,715 offenders were convicted of illegal re-entry accounting for 82% of immigration offenders sentenced. And they're granted sanctuary in cities like New York and San Francisco and Chicago and 300 jurisdictions and campuses. An overwhelming, in the study that I saw today, an overwhelming number of voters say local authorities should be required to comply with federal immigration law. A Harvard-Harris poll survey found that 80% of voters are against sanctuary cities. They want law and order, especially if they know what it is. So the loud people and the anarchists are the minority. A Pew Research Center report released earlier this month reveals an estimated 2.5 million immigrants in the country illegally live in the metro areas of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, all cities that have vowed to fight President Trump's enforcement of immigration law. A recent U.S. Immigrations and Custom Enforcement operation, we talked about this last week, removed criminal illegal immigrant fugitives in New York, arresting criminals with an array of sexual assault, rape, drugs, DUI, robbery, larceny, and other criminal offenses, including re-entry upon final orders of removal and an MS-13 gang member. In New York City, in a separate case, an illegal immigrant... In the New York Post today, MS-13 gang member allowed to be released under Mayor Bill de Blasio's sanctuary city policy. An idiot. There was a federal petition to hold this MS-13 gang member for deportation. Esteban Rafael Marquez Velasquez is his name. He was set free from Rikers Island on February 16th after serving time for disorderly conduct. ICE officials had requested last May that the gang member be turned over to immigration officials when he finished serving his sentence. 
makes sense. He's a gang member and doesn't belong here. An immigration judge ordered his removal in November 2015. Thomas Decker, a field office director for the New York Immigration and Customs Enforcement Unit, said this. This man is, by his own admission, a member of a violent street gang, and he was released back into the community. Honoring a detainer request is not about politics. It is about keeping New York citizens safe in this case, from the field office director of ICE. ICE had to send in their own agents to find Velasquez the same day in Queens. In another case, another one, a 19-year-old murder suspect. These are all recent cases. There are others. A 19-year-old murder suspect in Denver is in jail with another man for the killing of 32-year-old Tim Cruz on February 7th. Immigration and Customs Enforcement placed a detainer on the murder suspect after being arrested by Denver police in October 2016 for car theft and other charges. Remember, yesterday, we had Michael Cutler on, former retired immigration naturalization service agent, and he said oftentimes these illegal immigrants are picked up for minor offenses, and then they run their name, and, and there you go. You find that they've committed heinous crimes. ICE wanted to be notified of any pending release of this murder suspect because he was suspected of being in the U.S. illegally from Mexico. Mexico, by the way, today the prime minister comes out and says, we will not accept Trump's deportation enforcement, uh, enforcement of immigration laws. We're not going to accept this. Does he have a choice? It's not about Mexico caring or them accepting American policies. In what world do other countries tell their neighbors or any other country how to enforce their laws? When gang members are coming here up through South America, into Mexico, into the U.S. And Mexico, like you heard from Michael Cutler yesterday, Mexico's profiting from that because the money goes from the U.S., the drug money, into Mexico. So... Who the hell cares whether Mexico will accept Trump's policies? They're the problem. And it's time that we put America first. Doesn't that make sense that we don't want criminals here? If you commit a crime and you're an American citizen, you go to jail. You get locked up. So you're granted. You have to go to jail if you're if you're an American citizen. But any other person, if they're here illegally, they're granted sanctuary? In what world does that make sense? They shouldn't be here in the first place. Do things legally. Again, I'm pro-immigration, but I'm pro-legal immigration. Do things the right way. That's how I conduct my life, and that's how everyone should con conduct theirs. Now, this is an angel mom. Laura Wilkerson on Fox News Channel's Special Immigration Town Hall on uh, First 100 Days, hosted by Martha McCallum, Tuesday night. And this is what she said. Her son was killed at the hands of a dreamer, an illegal immigrant here in the United States. Laura Wilkerson of Fox News, Tuesday night. Well, I believe there's going to be a process, no matter how you do it. Somebody's going to be inconvenienced. You know, this law, I mean, without the 
immigration laws being enforced, this country has run amok. In any way that he does it, there's going to be an inconvenience to people. But for myself, I think if you're not burying your child in the ground and turning around and walking away, it's not an inconvenience that you can't deal with. He was a dreamer, brought here when he was 10 uh, from Belize. And um, I, he had been charged with the crime of harassment but not convicted. And then he murdered Joshua while he was out on bond for that. Um, he should never have gotten a bond. At the very least, they're a flight risk. And, um, it's, you know, you don't want to wait till they murder your kid until you, until you say, time, okay, time out. Now you're in trouble. It's ridiculous. Nobody gets sanctuary from a law. I, there's nothing I could do and be given sanctuary from it, and there's no reason for anybody else to have that as well. Emotional. To hear a mother whose son was killed in November 2010, right before Thanksgiving, by an illegal immigrant given sanctuary. And there are countless examples of this. The 680 illegal immigrants detained in recent ICE sweeps represent just 0.07% of the 950,062 with deportation orders as of May 21, 2016. This, according to statistics provided to Congress, and there are an estimated 3 million, just an estimated, I mean, there the estimation is that there are 11 total, 11 million total illegal immigrants in the country. That could be as many as 20 million. The estimation is that there are 3 million illegal immigrants with criminal records in addition to their illegal status. We talked about the Phoenix episode where the woman stole someone's identity and she was deported. You steal someone's identity. I mean, it's one thing you're coming here for a better life. You're escaping oppression. It's another thing to come here and, you know, you're supposed to kind of blend, you know, you're supposed to accept our American values. You're supposed to love us, as Trump says. But by committing a crime, you lost that opportunity. Um, the Trump administration is making the criminal illegal aliens a priority for swift removal. I mean, how could you not agree with that? Seriously, how could you not agree that criminal illegal aliens should be deported? How could you not agree with that? Common sense, no? Don't agree? All right. Tweet, Facebook me. Let me know why don't you agree. Because to me, it's common sense. These are preventable crimes. We're increasing Border Patrol agents. They're down nearly 1,600 from an all-time peak of 18,611 in 2013. And finally, the border wall that would be in place. The border wall is just one piece of it. You also have um, extreme vetting policies, and you have surveillance that goes along with the wall. Well, the U.S. gave $175 million in aid to Mexico from 2014 to 2016. 45% of that going to, quote, democracy, human rights, and governance, and 9% of Mexican aid towards, quote, peace and security. So President Trump could easily take some of that aid away and use that to pay for the wall. Screw Mexico. We will not accept Trump's policies. Who the hell do you think you are? Trump's not the president of the globe, and he's the president of the United States. And, by the way, Mexico, you have no control over anywhere but your own country. And they make a lot of money off of drugs. 
new executive order expected next week now. So it was supposed to be by the end of this week, by Thursday, Friday, and that now seems like it is pushed back to next week. What they are saying is that the order will, and maybe they're just trying to uh, fine-tune the communication rollout, but they're going to be focused on the seven terror-riddled nations again, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, and a missing one. Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, and Libya. There you go. Not even looking at it. And those seven terror-riddled nations will be suspended immigration and refugees. Um, There is some sort of adjustment to the Syrian immigration and refugee suspension. I don't even want to say what's being reported because I don't know if it's true. And they're saying that green card holders, though, uh, will be exempt. That was a little muddied up. Again, the constitutionality of the law was never litigated. And the judge, frankly, overstepped his bounds. Um, Just to read you, by the way, well, I'm not going to read it, but because we've read it over and over again. 8 U.S. Code 1182 on inadmissible aliens gives the president the right to suspend immigration for any period that he deems necessary if it threatens national security. The U.S. Constitution, by the way, up on NeilAcurso.com, this whole article, Section 4 of the Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republic form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. It is the president's job to keep United States citizens safe. So we will continue to analyze that. And if you missed the interview with Michael Cutler on the Tuesday podcast, go check it out. Really crucial interview. You'll understand how immigration takes hold in the United States and where how how it works. The illegal, from from an agent who has arrested criminals. They're they coming, you know, they're coming in, they're bringing you know, Trump famously said when he announced his candidacy they're bringing um you know, some of them are bringing in drugs and and uh, and are gang members. And look, MS-13 gang members, we have two of them. I just gave you two examples, recent ones, within the past two weeks. I mean, there's no question why Trump was elected president. It is to protect the nation. And I just let you hear from an angel mom. No one's mother should have to go through that. And this is not anti-immigration. For all those out there who were thinking it. Not anti-immigration. But people should come in legally. You know, people used to come in. And if they came in illegally, they would be shunned from society. And, you know, they came in, did things the right way, changed their name in some cases. And listen, there was a lot of anti-Italian, anti-Greek rhetoric and feelings in the United States number of years ago. Um, so it has nothing to do with any... So, you know, it's something new. And it's not just against one religion or 
or anything like that. It's about protecting the country. It's about doing things the right way. If you really want to come into America, and maybe the process shouldn't be as mundane, but we should know who you are. If we don't know who you are, if you have no paperwork or identification, we know that ISIS, as our intelligence tells us, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they want to infiltrate the refugee and immigration populations. And they successfully did so in Brussels, Berlin, those terror attacks there. Why the hell would we actually continue those programs? All right. Move away from illegal immigration for now, since that was yesterday's program. NeilAcruzzo.com for the latest on that, because we have a lot of uh, big league stories up there. Uh, there was, well, all right, one thing, just to go off of this. There was an illegal immigrant this month. I saw the story today from Mexico, a woman who committed voter fraud, voted at least five times, at least, between 2012 and 2014, and she has been sentenced to eight years in jail. Good. She came in here illegally and voted five times. And I wonder who she voted for. I'm just curious. In 2012 and through 2014, who did she vote for five times? Just wondering. I doubt it's a Republican. Uh, and regardless, voter fraud exists. And there are a lot of deniers of voter fraud. It goes on. Whether it be illegal immigrants being bussed in, whether it be 800,000, according to a st recent study, voting for Hillary Clinton this past election. Voter fraud exists. And... I don't see why a identification is a problem. I have to provide identification to buy stamps to, well, obviously, alcohol, you need an ID to prove your age, um, to buy expensive equipment. Sometimes when you buy a new computer, you have to show identification. A car. Um, sometimes little minor things you have to show identification for. When you use a credit card, they want to make sure it's your credit card. I once had to show identification for batteries, for a lotto ticket. Um, what else? I'm just spitballing here. But there are a bunch of things that you need to show identification for. As a student, you have a student identification. Why is it so difficult to pull out a card out of your wallets to show who you are? And by the way, even then they get it wrong. If you have the same name as somebody, you almost end up signing for someone who's 50 years older than you with the same name. They don't even check. Real nice. So voter fraud exists and has to be handled. It just does. Why would we take that risk? We should have per a perfect, it's very hard to have a perfect system. We should have efficient systems in the United States to make sure that our democracy is upheld. Um, by the way, you know the inauguration when there were rioters or that set a limo on fire at the limo. They thought it was Trump's limo, which, by the way, to me is uh, espionage. Um, they set a limo on fire. It turned out to be a Muslim uh, immigrant that had a limo company. Well, over 200 rioters that were setting Washington, D.C. on fire January 20th 
they have been indicted, over 200 of them. And then I want to tell you about this. A freed Gitmo detainee, because remember, you know, Obama's promise he's going to close Gitmo, uh, Gitmo when we know that we lose track of them and wherever they go, they're going to end up on the battlefield fighting against us. That's just a fact. Um, well, this just proves that, even though we don't need further proof, because we know that we'll lose track of them and they'll end up fighting against us, is these are thugs that are in Gitmo. These are the worst of the worst. A freed Gitmo detainee turned ISIS bomber. An Islamic State fighter carried out a suicide attack against an army base in Iraq this week. He was a former Guantanamo Bay detainee who was released in 2004. And get this. This Gitmo detainee who is fighting for ISIS was given $1.2 million in government funds in compensation after his release. Yeah, we paid $1.2 million in compensation for a Gitmo detainee's release who carried out a suicide attack for ISIS in Iraq this week. Yeah, I'm just as outraged too. Ronald Fiddler, his name, converted to Islam in his 20s to become Jamal al-Harith, a British ISIS fighter who smiled for the camera. There's a picture. He smiled for the camera before fighting in Mosul, bombing the coalition forces. He joined ISIS in 2014, reportedly, and he smiled for the camera before he bombed us. $1.2 million in government funds and compensation in ISIS fighter. And if that doesn't piss you off enough, we'll move on. Unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Terrible policies. And so President Trump has said we are going to keep Gitmo open because he knows... Doesn't take a genius to know it anyway, but now that he knows all the classified information, this guy commits a terrorist attack. We could have prevented people from dying. Unbelievable. All right, we'll move on to the political machinations. I put it off because, frankly, it's pretty stupid and immature, but it's got to be talked about. April Ryan, Washington Bureau Chief of American Urban Networks. She, by the way, she was the one that had the spout with um, President Trump at the press conference last Thursday. This is, all right, so this is April Ryan and President Trump. I'm going to give you full context on all these audios because I want you to hear it for context. I don't want you to be duped in any way by clips. Here is last week, this April Ryan of American Urban Networks asking a question to President Trump about inner cities and what he's specifically going to do about helping those in the inner cities. This was President Trump and April Ryan at the Thursday press conference last week, just to give you a flashback. You go to some of these inner city uh, places, and it's so sad when you look at the crime. You have people, and I've seen this, and I've 
sort of witnessed it. In fact, in two cases, I have actually witnessed it. They lock themselves into apartments, petrified to even leave in the middle of the day. They're living in hell. We can't let that happen. So we're going to be very, very strong. It's a great question, and, and a, it's, a very, it's a very difficult situation because it's been many, many years. It's been festering for many, many years. But we have places in this country that we have to fix. We have to help African-American people that, for the most part, are stuck there, Hispanic American people. We have Hispanic American people that are in the inner cities, and they're living in hell. I mean, you look at the numbers in Chicago. There are two Chicagos, as you know. There's one Chicago that's incredible, luxurious and all, and safe. There's another Chicago that's worse than almost any of the places in the Middle East that we talk about and that you talk about every night on the newscasts. So we're going to do a lot of work on the inner cities. I have great people lined up to help with the inner cities. Well, when, okay? you say, when you say the inner cities, are you, going to, are you going to include the CBC, Mr. President, in your conversations with your, your urban agenda, your inner city agenda, as well as... Am I going to include Are who? you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Well, Hispanic I would. Caucus, I tell you what. Do you want to well set up the, the meeting? Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. I'm, are they I'm, friends I'm, of I'm yours? I'm just a reporter. No, get a, set up the I meeting. I know some of them, but I'm sure Let's they're Let's go set up right a now. meeting. I would love to meet with the Black Caucus. I think it's great. The Congressional black hole. All right. So after that portion, what happened was, well, President Trump said that he had a meeting set up. And because of political reasons and because the Democrats are kissing Chuck E. Schumer's ring on the left because he's got the political power, that uh, that meeting was canceled. And the leader of the Congressional Black Caucus didn't want to meet with President Trump and wanted to hear him out because why? He's the president and we have to support him. And he has met with many black leaders. Ben Carson yesterday at the uh, African American Museum and his wife, Alveda King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece. He met with Martin Luther King uh, III at Trump Tower in the transition period. He met with uh, Jim Brown at Ethel Great, who does a lot of work in the inner cities. And they're working together. And these are not people who necessarily support Trump, although Alveda King was a Trump supporter from the get-go, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece. But these are just people who said, listen, he's our president. We have to support him, and we need him to help the inner cities. That's why he was voted, by the way, because you look at Chicago, 57% rise in homicides last year. It is carnage. And I have an article up on my website about the true carnage of Chicago, with all the statistics laid out for you. Of course, no one talks about that. But, all right, be that as an end, jobs and gangs, and we talked about that with Michael Culler yesterday. So, after in that conversation, that back and forth with April Ryan, Trump was, and April Ryan goes on MSNBC and says, oh, well, that was, and MSNBC says it was inherently racist, what Trump said, because God forbid you say set up a meeting I mean, listen, what's so wrong with saying, well, how about you set up a meeting? Because Trump had a meeting scheduled, and it was canceled on him. Do you want to set up a meeting? I'll be there. What's so wrong with that? He's saying, all right, you set up a meeting, I will be there, I promise you. As the president, I will be there. And she took offense to that, and people took offense to it. How could you talk to an African-American reporter like that? It's just, it, it, there are people, too. Um, and so as so then that followed, and then now yesterday at the uh, press briefing that Sean Spicer had 
Uh, this is April Ryan asked him this question. John, okay, what did the president um, gain from his tour today? Um, you talked about where he visited, uh, the, exhibits, the exhibits that he visited. Did he also visit slavery? And the reason why I'm uh, asking this is because when he was candidate Trump, he said things like, you know, we made this country, meaning uh, white America, not necessarily black. Did he gain? Well, well, I don't know why you would say that. What do you mean? No, no, no. He said that. I heard him say that. Well, no, no, but look. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, that question is disgusting. The question implies that Trump is a racist. Asking him, asking Sean Spicer, the press secretary, about something, by the way, Trump never said. And we have the tape for you. Okay. Um, what April Ryan asked was, what did, when Trump as a candidate said, white people built this country? Well, Trump never said that. You want to hear the tape? Here we go. March 15th, 2016, uh, Vandalia, Ohio. Our military can't be ISIS. It's being depleted. It can't be ISIS. Our veterans are being treated horribly. Our border, our border is like a, a piece of Swiss cheese. The people just come pouring across. We don't have borders anymore. So let me just tell you. And on top of that, we have a divided country. We have black and white and every other thing. Income groups. Everybody hates everybody. Even in Congress. You look at Congress. You look at Washington, look at the politicians. The politicians hate each other. The Democrats hate the Republicans. The liberals hate the conservatives. We have got to change our thinking. Yeah, and for those of you guys, just throw them in the hell Almost a year ago in Ohio, President Trump talked about division in the country. He talked about how uh, conservatives and liberals do not get along. He talked about stifling free speech across the country, that people don't let each other speak. We've seen that. We talked about college campuses on this program. Um, he talked about division between races and that President Obama divided Americans by identity politics. Something we talked about with Michael Cutler yesterday. And then he said that we have to keep our country safe. By the way, he said the same thing for two years. And he's been spot on. We have to keep our country safe. And we need to ensure that people that are coming in love us. That was the next line, by the way, of this clip. That I... That was a minute, but obviously it's a long rally. And he talked about that. 
and um, and how we need vetting procedures. And then he said our First Amendment needs to be protected, the right to free speech. People need to be able to express their views and not be shut up for their views and not be called a racist like this person is doing when you have a different point of view. And what he said was, we need to protect our First Amendment. We are good people. We, we, not they or a certain group, we as a country built this nation. Meaning, we, through years of hard work, we're hardworking, loving Americans. Okay? And we built this country together. And we need to hold on to it. That has nothing to do with race. Nothing. And this is the exact clip, by the way. So I'm not just assuming. March 15, 2016, it was tweeted out by April Ryan Today, and she says this, quote, So what does, quote, we built this country, end quote, that being Trump, mean in front of a predominantly white crowd? What does race have to do with anything here? Who cares who's in the crowd? It could be purple people. It could be opalopas. Nothing to do with race. Nothing. That is absolutely abhorrent. And this is the problem with the country. And this is where we are so divided. This this is the exact problem that Trump is talking about in that clip. That we are so divided that everything is made about race. And everything is made about identity politics that separates people. Enough with the separation. That was a unifying message about coming together that we all love this country and that we should all protect our country. What is so wrong with that? Just because you want to protect the nation does not make you a bigot. It's just the opposite. You're protecting Americans of all color, race, creed, religion. And making sure that people come in and do things the right way and that we can reduce crime. We have a country of 315 million people and more. And it's time that we acted as a country instead of being so divided. Donald Trump Jr., by the way, tweeted today a quote that I found very good, uh, very very informative, very uh, profound. This is the word I was looking for. How unacceptably jaded we have become by our politics, that people, by our politicians, excuse me, that people are shocked when one of them actually does what he said he would do. It's true. President Trump has been saying the same thing for two years. And people are shocked. How could he reduce taxes? How could he be putting up a wall? He promised it for two years. And by the way, he's also said Mexico is going to pay for it. And hopefully he keeps his promises. He'd be the only politician in modern era that has kept his promises if he does so. And see, that's the thing. Donald Trump is different from all other politicians. He is different. And different is a good thing. People voted for change. They voted for action. And frankly, not only are the Democrats obstructing, but everyone is on uh, – this leave this week, I guess, for President's Day, whatever. They're all home trying to pander for votes, talking to voters. They should they should be there every weekend 
living in Washington in that bubble does not mean you're connecting with your voters and your constituents. And so, yeah, there were some protests. I don't really want to talk about because, honestly, it's meaningless. They're all paid. I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them are, are paid. They have, a, they have an agenda that they publish online, the liberals publish an agenda saying bring up race whenever you could and make it a thing about conservatives being racist. Seriously, this is in their platform. It's so intelligence, so intelligence. And so, yeah, President Trump is doing exactly what he said he would do. In the intro, you heard about the uh, the budget he mentioned. And he they're writing two budgets, which is unheard of. Now, President Trump is supposed to speak at CPAC on Friday, the Conservative Political Action Committee, on Friday, and I think he also is speaking in front of Congress on Tuesday. He was invited. So next Tuesday, he will be in front of Congress. And that will be an important message, not only to see how the Democrats react, but also Republicans. You know, they've had seven years to come up with a plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Where is it? I've been saying that. They have a 200-day plan. Well, Hopefully they get it done in 200 days because I don't see much work happening. And President Trump is working so hard. He's a worker. He's not a talker. He's a doer. That's that's the difference between Trump and politicians. So he talked about the budget, and he talked about we need to be conscious of every taxpayer dollar that we spend. There's wage fraud and abuse, and we shouldn't be wasting taxpayer dollars on frivolous items. Especially those... That government should not be involved in anyway. Uh, by the way, Mike Pence today, vice president. Um, just a few more things. When we get to that interview with the uh, education uh, education topic with Daniel Blanchard, really, really insightful interview. But I have to get to all this big news today. And, uh, and so I'm basically laying it out for you. Mike Pence, vice president, made a surprise visit to a vandalized Jewish cemetery today in St. Louis or near St. Louis, to condemn the recent vandalism that took place there. Quote, from the, from the heart, there is no place in America for hatred or acts of prejudice or violence or anti-Semitism. Echoing exactly what the president said, and we played for you yesterday. Pence has a key diplomatic role. Like I coined the phrase on Monday, good cop, bad cop. Pence is the diplomatic guy who's talking to Congress, who will legislatively pass and push the Trump agenda, which is very ambitious, and he needs that political assistance. But Trump is the bad guy. Trump is going to be out there saying things in a bold and brash way, as he does, and he will have the leadership from the top, and he's not afraid to say what he has to say and mean what he has to say. And then Mike Pence can smooth it out with Congress. And the and same thing with defense. And you see Mattis there and diplomacy. President Trump's diplomacy is deal-making. So that's the difference. It is good cop, bad cop. It truly is. Um, so Pence is playing a very, very key role in this administration. That's the art of the deal. Um, I want to get to the budget. Uh, well, all right, let me tell you this. Two things before we get to the break, and then we'll get you the uh, Daniel Blanchard, who we talk uh, with for an hour 
Um, President Trump has no friends in Washington. Absolutely no friends in Washington. Nor should he have friends in Washington. If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. This is the famous quote from President Harry Truman. President Trump needs to keep doing what he's doing and be the outsider that he is against the establishment. He's not there to make friends. He's there to make America great again. We will make America great again. Uh, okay, last thing. Uh, there was a directive on Wednesday about transgender bathrooms, undoing the Obama directive that it was a federal directive, um, not a law, just a directive. Obama told schools that they have to allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice or if you if you identify as that so you know i could say i identify as whatever and use whatever bathroom that's the directive that obama uh, the obama administration put forth president trump has kept a long-standing position that states decide and that it is a state's rights issue and so that will have to be issued on the on the local level and be discussed on the local level. It has nothing to do with the federal government is Trump's position. So there's no federal directive. Um, it'll be up to the state. So the schools now, you're transgender. I mean, you know, you got to use a private bathroom or what have you, but there's no federal directive. If the school allows you, I mean, maybe the school has a policy, but that's not going to come from the federal government. And that's just, a, listen, that's just a, let's, let's not meddle in people's lives thing. It's smaller government as opposed to bigger government. Um, as we get to break here, let me just tell you this quick. Daniel Blanchard comes up next. Um, according to the Program for International Student Assessment, this Pew Research study that I have in front of me, the most recent results from 2015 placed the United States at a, quote, unimpressive 38th out of 71 countries in math and 24th in science. The education system needs to be reformed. There's simply no accountability in education. And we talk about that with Daniel Blanchard on the other side of the break. Just about accountability. And students are being hurt in favor of successful AP and graduate, you know, advanced placement courses and graduation rates. So the schools look good, but the students get hurt. Why are your kids hurting? How can we change things? That's up next with Daniel Blanchard, our uh, educational expert here on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast. I'm Neil A. Caruso. You want to win? We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. Neil A. Caruso is winning every day. This is the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast on neilacaruso.com and on iTunes. Subscribe now. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. I'm not. M2. I'm not. M2. 
Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update. I'm going to let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. Get engaged. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Oh. They're prisons! <laughs> Man-made prisons! You're doing time! Not that type of engagement. Get engaged with the Neela Caruso Show podcast by subscribing on iTunes and following Neela Caruso on Twitter, Instagram, and his official Facebook page so you don't miss out on the important things in life. The Neela Caruso Show podcast. Now joining us on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast is Dan Blanchard, a friend of the program. He's an inner city school teacher up in Connecticut. He is also a double U.S. veteran. And also he told me this because we're going to talk about alternative schools today. And he is a, a teacher of two alternative – well, not currently, but he taught at two alternative schools. And so he has a lot of expertise in this area on this ProPublica investigation – um, and Mr. Blanchard, I appreciate you coming on again tonight. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, you asking me to be on again. Of course, and uh, you're like my educational expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm just glad I can help out. I appreciate it. So this uh, ProPublic uh, investigation, it was published by USA Today. Um, on it was, I saw it on Tuesday. I think that's when it was published. Um, and so they look at this area in um, Orlando, and it's Olympia High School in Orlando, and there's an alternative school, an alternative charter school um, to Olympia that is called um, Sunshine. And so Sunshine hosts a lot of the, um, not the brightest students, Olympia, the uh, success rates are very high, and this all has to do with No Child Left Behind, which was enacted in 2001. Let me just start out simple first. I don't think a lot of people know. We talked about charter schools last week. What are alternative schools? All right, now, um, alternative schools, I guess, I don't know if there's one single definition for it, but I guess the easiest way to put it is that it's, uh, like, some of the kids that just say aren't working out in the regular, traditional public schools, they need, like, another alternative, some, you know, somewhere else to go where hopefully they can have some success. So you, these other schools pop up that are called alternative schools, and, you know, they're a little bit different than the charter schools or the magnet schools, as we had talked last week. The charter schools and magnet schools, you know, they've been accused of cherry-picking a little bit and taking some of the top talent, right. whereas charter school, alternative schools would kind of be, let's say, the opposite. You know, they'd go after, let's say, some of the lower kids who weren't having success in their school, and they would... No, hopefully offer them an environment that would be more conducive to their needs, maybe a more structure, more support, 
and hopefully get these kids through, you know, an alternative educational setting and get them what they need to get their credits and be successful and graduate high school. Right. So, all right, let me give you the layout for this. Olympia High School in Orlando, it's not far from, it's only um, uh, five miles away from the alternative school that is Sunshine. And Olympia offers two more uh, offers more than two dozen AP courses, advanced placement courses, um, more after-school clubs, an array of sports. Um, and U.S. News and World Report ranks Olympia as, as the nation's top 1,000 high schools last year. But the alternative school, Sunshine, um, 137 students um, – in uh, originally assigned to Olympia, attended Sunshine, which is the charter alternative school, which is run by a for-profit company. Uh, just to lay that out, Sunshine yep. instead of in a you know pish posh area, it's a few doors down from a tobacco shop and a liquor store and a strip mall. Um, so there's some danger there. Offers wow. no sports teams or anything like that. And what yep. they found was is that it's almost like a segregated school where. Because of just how they were placed, this is an unintended consequence, that more than 85% are black or Hispanic. Um, and these, this um, school does not have as high achievement rates. It's basically, all, all compared to daycare, it's basically you sit there, there's no oversight or anything like that. Is that fair? Well, now, you know, basically, you know, there's a lot of different colors of the uh, of, of the rainbow. I mean, there's a there's a whole spectrum here of alternative schools. Right. And uh, the one you're talking about, I'm a little bit familiar with it. I've read a little bit on it also. And you know, when I read that, it was it was kind of shocking. I, although I can't say totally shocking. Of course, there's going to be some schools out there. But I like to say that there's a lot of different types of alternative schools out there. You know, some of them are are real good. And they're doing a great job for their kids, and it's I guess it's sort of like the you know that that bell shape that we had talked about before. You know, you can have a bunch of them that are like you know average, okay, in the middle. You can have some at the top of that bell shaped curve that are really really good ones, and you're going to have some on the bottom that are you know bad. I mean, they're not getting the job done. They're you know they don't have the oversight. It just seems like they're just you know taking some money and housing these kids, and uh, you know it's sad. It's sad when you see that. So something like that. You know, you kind of like you need some you need some oversight on something like that. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with something like that. Right. Uh, and if you go back to the conversation we had before, I mean, some of these charter schools, magnet schools, some of the beautiful things about them is that you don't have to go through all the bureaucracy that you do in public schools. Sure, sure. So you can move a little quicker, you know, and when you can move a little quicker, be a little more innovative. You know, hopefully, you can create this in educational environment that's conducive two of these kids that we have talked about with the alternative, I mean, with the uh, magnet and the charter schools, and the same philosophy, you know, would be applicable with the alternative schools. The only thing is, in some places, it's working out fine, and, you know, and in some places, it's not. Yeah, you know? and it uh, seems like it's not working well, in this case. It would seem that way. I mean, I've yeah. never stepped inside the building, you know what I'm saying, so I don't know personally, but from some of the stuff of I've heard and read, it would seem, uh, Neil, that that's one of the cases, and I'm sure there's, you know, it's not the only school, there's a bunch of them, I'm sure, that are falling into this trap of uh, taking the kids and, and maybe kind of housing them a little bit and not getting the job done. And, and that's, you know, that's a pity. It's sad. Right. Dan Blanchard on the program, uh, granddaddysecrets.com, by the way. Um, you know, 
I saw this report and I thought of you right away and I really wanted to get into this because even though it's a one it's an investigation about one area in Orlando I'm sure this goes on across the country and let me just tell you one gentleman's uh, story that was uh, quoted in this report um, he's 20 years old now he was 17 when he was in the uh, classroom in uh, sunshine which is the alternative charter school and he said that he would show up, he would sit down and listen to music the whole time. He didn't really make any progress, and that he could even cheat on a test and no one would even notice, and the teachers weren't up to, up to par. They, were, they weren't, um, you know, you talk about accountability in that conversation last week. There was, you know, really no accountability in the classroom there, and they could get away with anything. And they really they weren't learning. The whole purpose was because no uh, no child left behind. They had to keep them in the classroom, but they really weren't um, being taught anything. What's yeah, your reaction? And I, and I, can tell you, I, I can tell you now. I mean, I you know I, I worked in two different um, alternative schools, and you know it didn't go that way. Okay. In the alternative schools that I worked in, the teachers I worked with were. Hardworking teachers, and, and let me back up a little bit, just real quick. I gotta say, it's it's hard to find teachers, believe it or not, for schools like this, because these are very difficult um, environments to work in. You know, you're working with some very difficult students, and you know, some of these students are just outright angry, you know, and hostile. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's hard to find teachers, let alone good teachers. So I could see that if you've got a lot of these alternative schools, uh, you can have a hard time finding, let's say, teachers and finding good teachers, you know, ones that stick around, uh, you know, maybe ones that aren't wherever else they may be going next. So I can imagine this, yeah, this must be happening, you know, in a lot of different places in our country, especially if they're really, really pushing alternative schools because, you know, you just don't have the, the bodies out there that you need to fill these positions. So you're not going to get high-quality people all the time. However, I can say, you know, the two alternative schools I worked in, you know, we had good teachers in there that worked really hard. Right. And these kids, they didn't listen to get away with anything. You know, we were, like, right on top of them the whole day. So they didn't get away with anything. So um, I know it can be done. And I know that there's good alternative schools out there that do make a difference for right. these kids. So but on the, same, on, the other, on the same hand, you know, the other hand, I should say, there's the other side of it as well. Yeah, and, um, you know, the purpose here is not to bash all schools because there are great teachers out there, you know. Um, that's not the point. The point is to shed light on um, the uh, poor accountability in these classrooms. And, you know, this is probably not an isolated incident. And, you know, kids uh, are graduating like this gentleman who's 20 now, doesn't have much of an education because he was – and there was a woman actually quoted here that I want to get to. I'll tell you her story she felt like she wasn't welcome there anymore. And her mom was really ticked off. I mean, the girl brought home some pamphlets for Sunshine, and they had this um, assembly at school at the uh, Olympia High School, which, you know, has uh, all these advanced placement courses and has a great reputation and all of that. And they had an assembly for all these kids and said, oh, not for the entire um, school, just for a certain amount that weren't doing so well on tests, and said, no, you'd be better if we spent more time with you in the classroom. And this school, it's more your, it's more your pace. But the mother looked at it and said, "This, my child's smarter than this." 
and they felt like they weren't welcome there anymore, that they were being pushed out the door because the school wanted to say, oh, well, we graduate 96% and they all go on to college. Isn't that, isn't that a sin? Yeah, you know, it saddens me you know, to hear something like that. I mean, every kid should feel welcomed in their uh, home school system, you know, their neighborhood school, whatever that may be. So that really saddens me to hear something like that. I'm assuming that, you know, there probably are some schools out there, out there that are more concerned about their numbers than anything else and maybe do create an environment like that, either knowingly or unknowingly. But that really, really saddens me to hear something like that. And I know where, where I work. Uh, you know, we're not big on alternative schools where I work. We pretty much house mo- most of our kids um, inside of the school, the public school, the neighborhood school, uh, you know, where they're supposed to be going to school. And they have to do a lot. They have to do a lot of, you know, things that are not right. You know, they have to have, like, a history of failing, a history of misbehaving. You know, we have multiple PPTs, and, you know, and then parents got to agree to it and sign off on it. So I know in the school system I work in, it's very difficult to actually leave the, the, the regular public school and go into alternative schools. And, uh, you know, the, alter- the options we even have available to us right. are so little. So, you know, so again, this is not happening everywhere, but I could see you now where this could be happening around the country, especially, you know, if you're, if you're really being pressured to, you know, make certain numbers and then getting the kids out of the school help you get those numbers. I could definitely see how this happens, but boy, this saddens me. You know, I, I, I've never seen this happen. You know, I can't picture this happening, um, but, uh, but I'm sure it probably is happening along the ways, and I just feel really bad for that kid, for that girl and her family. That should just never happen. No, it's a terrible story. Um, we're talking to Dan Blanchard, inner city school teacher in Connecticut, and so let's talk about No Child Left Behind because I had mentioned it, and a lot of people, you know, here it's a, it's a buzz phrase it's a, but it is a law that was enacted under George W Bush in 2001 so you know the purpose of it was to close the achievement gap with accountability flexibility and choice so that no child is left behind that's why it's called that but while it was supposed to improve the educational outcomes for students long overlooked some of the and of course that included um, minorities uh, some of the unintended co- uh, consequences here is that um, those students were overrepresented, uh, overrepresented, uh, excuse me, in uh, alternative classrooms, where there was really second-tier education. There is how this uh, study by uh, Publica, ProPublica, uh, describes it. Um, so the quality diminished as an unintended consequence. Um, the reform was the biggest reform since '65 under Lyndon Johnson, and um, you know. It was really supposed to benefit these kids, but there are some unintended consequences. What are your what's your thoughts and your analysis on No Child Left Behind and how it works practically in the public school system? Well, I got to tell you now, our public school system here in the United States is very complex, very complicated, and I don't know if anybody truly has the answers. Yeah, too complicated. Here, I tell you, I mean, you know, yeah, President Bush's No Child Left Behind was almost like a strong arm sort of thing. You know, you guys are going to do this, unless we're going to take away funding. Right. You know, you're going to get in trouble. You know, so you're going to do this. And then Obama comes around and says, hey, let's have a, let's not strong arm, let's make it like a competition sort of thing. Race to the top. You know, we'll do this. And 
we'll give people, uh, you know, we'll give you funding and this and that if you come up with these innovative ideas and you race to the top. Right, the all STEM that. research. So what happens yeah. is neither one of those programs really, really paid off. You know, they really did. They, what it did, I think it put a lot of pressure on schools. And this is where it gets complicated now because you want accountability. You just can't have no accountability and think everything's going to be all right. You want some accountability, but the moment you start throwing in this, these forms of accountability, it gets tricky because now you're almost putting more pressure on the numbers than on people. You know, it's like you care about the numbers more than people. So what happens? You know, you, you hear about it in the news. You know, people um, start changing answers on tests right. so that there's supposed to have better test results. You know, so you see all these things. So what you're, what you're talking about here tonight now, you know, people start pushing kids out of their school into alternative schools so it doesn't go on their graduation rates or their test scores or any of that other stuff that's going to make them look bad. And, you know, all that's coming from the whole um, pressure of the accountability sort of thing. But then how do you not have accountability? You have to. You have to have some accountability. So the answer to this is I, I don't really know right now what the answer to this is. I just know that the whole uh, the Bush thing and the Obama thing didn't, didn't work really in this country. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, you know, we've got it. We've spent trillions of dollars trying to improve education in this country, and it just really hasn't worked. Now, if I could throw in now, um, go ahead. I think one of the biggest problems is you said that the minorities were overrepresented, let's say, in these alternative schools. Right, 85% in this case in Orlando, and um, mm -hmm. they weren't. And there's the school, the, besides that, and obviously you don't, I mean, it was an un unintended consequence of segregation. But mm -hmm. put that, be that as it may, the um, teachers weren't good in these schools either. Yes. Poor uh, quality. Yeah, there was definitely some unintended consequences. But, I mean, if this country's going to really do something about this, you know, we need to get these kids as early as possible. I mean, I know there's been some preschool programs and stuff like that that have had some results. But the sad thing is now, and we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, is you get these, these children, they come to school, they're not school ready. Yeah. Okay, so let me give you an example. Sure. In my town, where I live, you know, my daughter went to uh, kindergarten. And in her kindergarten class, she had 15 students. You know, and this is a predominantly, uh, you know, white neighborhood. And she had 15 students in her class. She had a teacher. She had a paraprofessional. She had a second, like, part-time paraprofessional. She had uh, a college intern that was always there, and then two other college interns that were there, like, sometimes. So 15 kids in there who had already had parents reading to them every night for the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. You know, they come in, they're school-ready, they're potty-trained. You know, they're, they're, they're excited about being at school, and you've got 15 kids in that classroom, and you've got anywhere from two, three, four, five adults in that classroom, okay? Now, let's take it to the inner cities. You come into these, these large inner cities, you've got the, these minorities that are coming into school. You know, their parents haven't been reading to them the last couple of years. So, you know, some of them you know, aren't potty trained. And you go into a kindergarten class, you could see 30 kids in that kindergarten class with one kindergarten teacher. So their first experience of school is chaos. And in some ways, it's a little bit like some, some of them, for some of them, like the homes they come from. You know, their experience of home is chaos. They come into school. The first experience, there's chaos. So then life, you know, this is just how it must be. It must be chaotic. Right. This is just how it is. 
know, the experience that my kids get are completely different. My kid goes into that kindergarten class, and my kid is ready to learn, excited to learn, has parents that are supporting them, encouraging them, and everything in there is, like, structured and orderly, you know, and quiet and calm. There's, there's no chaos in there. So my kids' first um, experience with school puts them in a position where they're much, much better able to succeed in first grade, second grade, and carrying on. You know what I'm saying? So, and I don't know, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, Big Brother is watching or we have to jump in there, you know. That's not the answer either. But but the thing is, it's very, very complex when you get these inner city kids coming to school and they're not school ready. And they come from a culture that uh, education is not a top priority. And then you put them 30 kids in there in kindergarten with one teacher. And... You know, they, and they just, it's, like, almost like, it's almost like they don't have a chance. You know, so how, how can you give them a chance? What would you recommend to be reformed in the educational system, in the public schools, in the inner cities? Well, I, I would think that it would make sense, and of course there's a, there's a lot of data backing this also. But I, I would think that we really, really have to go after them when they're young. You know, we have to get them in kindergarten, preschool, you know, they should all be in preschool at age four, age three. Okay. They should all be in preschool. And we really got to get them in a place where they can come in and they can experience calmness. They can experience um, structure. They can experience, you know, following rules and that, you know, and that rules are a good thing, you know, and structure's a good thing. Right. And that read good thing and that school's a good thing. And that these people here, these people here, they're, they're good people that are here for you, you know, they're not the opposition. You know what I'm saying? They're good people, these teachers and these parents and these administrators and tutors and whoever else is there. So, I mean, that, that would be one way to to work on it. You know, a, a second way, and, you know, maybe this is stretching maybe way beyond anything that we're capable of doing, but, yeah, I don't know, we need, we need to do a little more outreach. You know, we need to start educating the parents in these uh, inner cities and, you know, who maybe didn't have good experiences with school. You know, we need to outreach. We need to start finding a way to build relationships with these parents out in the communities where they can have a second look at their neighborhood schools and the adults that are working in these neighborhood schools and form relationships and friendships with them and say, you know what, you know, maybe I didn't have a good experience when I was a kid, but you know what, this place ain't so half bad now that I'm older, maybe, maybe a little wiser, maybe understand a little bit more. You know, this place ain't so half bad, so, yeah, you know what, I'm going to talk this place up to my kid, and I'm going to encourage my kid to come here and like it and do well and try and, you know, and like reading and all that other stuff. It all starts starts at a young age. It's like learning a language. You can't do it at an older age. I mean, you can, but it's it's more difficult. Yes, it definitely does start at a young age, and we we definitely need to do something with the parents. You know, I I don't want to, like go out and, just, and fully just criticize parents, yeah. but I, just, I do want to say it makes a big, big difference when, when parents act like education's important and they really encourage their kids, you know, to you think uh, they do? excited about education. You think there are parents who, you think that there are parents who are not as supportive of education as they can be? I think in the inner cities, you've had a lot of, inner, uh, a lot of parents who did not have good experiences themselves okay. in the uh, school system. You know, maybe it was chaotic in there. Maybe they got in trouble sometimes. And you know, whatever it might have been. 
Yeah, so they didn't have great experiences. So when they're kids, you know, I ask them about school, you know, they can only talk about what they know. And if they, you know, if what they know is that school was not fun, they did not enjoy school, they felt like they didn't really learn much, they felt like, you know, maybe it wasn't a safe place, they felt like maybe it was a waste of their time, you know, they can only talk to their kids about what they know. Mm-hmm. And then their kids are going to grow up with these beliefs get into the school. And now it's just become way more difficult to educate them. Daniel Blanchard on the Neil A. Kurtzler Show podcast today, inner city school teacher, WS veteran. He's also worked in two alternative schools, and that's what we're talking about today. You could go on to danielblanchard.net and uh, granddaddysecrets.com. Um, so I just want to get back to accountability. In Orlando, both of uh, the traditional and the alternative charter schools manipulated that accountability system. So what the report found was that the charters exploited a loophole in the state regulations. Um, so they actually, uh, those that, uh, hundreds of students that came in uh, who leave as uh, withdrawing to enter adult education, like GED classes, Sunshine, the alternative charter school, um, they claim virtually no dropouts. Um, they don't label withdrawals for that reason as dropping out, uh, but they can't say where these students actually went. They don't really have much uh, data, and um, there's it just seems like a total, I mean, we were talking last week, it just seems like a total lack of accountability in the classroom, and they only care about these, I'm going to say privileged, they only care about the privileged kids that are in the nice school, but the ones that are suffering that they need our support, they're the ones struggling in the job market, they're um, started. They're starting off with poor education early on. I would have to agree with you now. I mean, they definitely are starting off with a poor education. And I know that we had talked about this before a little bit, how that, you know, sometimes you get these kids that, let's say, are not appropriate for public education, and they're in there, and they're, let's say, tearing it up in there, and they're taken away from the learning process of the other 25 students. Uh, that are in their classroom, and that's not right. So we need to do something to help those 25 kids learn and take these couple of kids that are taken away from them and, and and put them maybe somewhere more appropriate. And that's the whole, you know, the whole thing about alternative schools, the whole thing behind it. However, you know, going back to what you're saying now, I mean, gosh, it drives me crazy when I think about people manipulating the numbers. Uh, and, again, I, I don't exactly know what the answer is. I mean, I don't know how you keep accountability if you don't keep numbers. Yeah, I mean, so what is the goal? The goal is to teach and educate kids, right? The goal should not be about, yeah. oh, well, we have to prove that we are uh, that we graduate 98%. Because what good is it if you graduate 98% but you're just pushing them along? I agree totally. And what good is it if you're graduating 98% but you're making it, let's say, easier every year for them to graduate? So, right. you know, you've got a kid that graduates this year that no way would have graduated five years ago. To me, it's just smoke screens. You know, you're doing the kids a disservice, and it's not right. And what happens is, the, 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 you know, the politicians, the stakeholders, you know, it's like, it's like they, they, just, they just don't get it. You know, they're just saying, you know, well, you've got to have, you know, whatever it is, 98% of your kids graduating, or, you know, you're gonna, it's going to be frowned upon. But that's not you know, the and, statistic that we should be looking at. I agree. We shouldn't be looking at the, those um, numbers at all. There's got to be a different way to do it. You know, 95% graduation rate or 98% or whatever it is, you're encouraging people to figure out, well, what can we do? What can we 
do over here and do over there to make sure we get those numbers so that nobody gets in trouble. You know, so we're not frowned upon. So our community isn't, uh, you know, looked at as, uh, you know, a bad, bad school community where the prices of homes, value of homes is going to drop. You know, so you got so a lot of different people in on this and a lot of different people that can lose, uh, you know, if the numbers don't come out right. So I think the people have got somehow, you know, they've got to recognize this and they've got to somehow be able to figure out another way to, uh, to go in and say, you know, is this a good school? Are they getting the job done? You know, um, there's got to be some so way how to do, do you, it. How do you measure um, success in the classroom? Because there are different exams, like, uh, for instance, New York State, where I am, there are the regents exams. And other um, states, I guess, have them, but they're not. Um, New York State is a big proponent of regents. Um, there are, of course, AP exams that I'll bring up in a, in a moment and kind of transition here to, to that um, story that I, I sent you earlier. Um, so you have the advanced placement exams that you saw were pushed in, in the um, Olympia High School in Orlando, um, not the alternative school. And you have the regents exams, always to measure student performance and teacher performance. You have some of the other um, standardized tests in, uh, in elementary school, but... I'm not sure that those work. Um, I see colleges moving away from the SATs in favor of the ACT or just looking at the um, the ACT test or just looking at the day-to-day work, which I was always in favor of. I don't know whether these standardized tests do much except um, promote test-taking skills. Where is the practical um, application of math, science, and other skills that we should be teaching in the classroom. How do you measure that? that that's a good question, now, and I, and I got to tell you, I mean, I'm trained as a special education teacher originally before I went off and did a whole bunch of other things and then came back into special ed. And one of the things I always remembered with special ed was that you never go on one data point. I'm saying so you never, ever go on one test score or one score, score whatever it may be, whether you're counting the graduation score, you know, number or whatever it is. You never go on one. Right. Now, I'm going to say something. This isn't very scientific, but this is what a lot of people are, are missing the point here now, is that education is both a science and an art. And because the art thing is much, much more difficult, people tend to kind of go into the science thing and say, well, let's measure this, let's measure that, you know, whatever, this test score, this graduation rate, you know, whatever it is. And they've really kind of almost muscled out the whole art of uh, education in the in regards to like the science of education because the science thing's easier you can measure it mm-hmm. you know so that's the way to go so now when I walk into a classroom now it's weird I mean you can walk in there and I always tell people this you can walk in there you know not know the teacher not know the students not know what the test scores are and probably within five minutes you can tell if that's a good classroom that's conducive to learning really you know, that you can quick say, you can pick that yeah. up. Yeah, and you're like, how? How do you know? Well, because you can feel it. You can actually feel it. Well, can you put numbers on that? And the thing is, well, not, not really. You know, well, you can do the scientific numbers and data and all that stuff, but you can feel it when you walk in there within five minutes. You can feel it. Now, now try, to, try to promote that idea 
and, and you can't. Because no, because so they'll laugh you out of the room because there's no data to support it. And they love these facts and figures. Like, you go to an open house, and I laugh at these open houses because if you go and kind of – you just act like a fly on the wall, and they go, well, 98% of students graduated from our high school, and they went on to Ivy League schools and whatever. Okay, you maybe had, you know, 1% go to Ivy League, and that's because of an SAT score. You know, let's face it. And the rest were pushed along, and colleges, frankly, you're spending $50,000, they want your money. So I just think that the education system, this is why I enjoy talking with you and asking your opinion on this, because you know the day-to-day work that goes into the classroom from the lower levels. And I think that it's um, an epidemic going on. Um, You know, we talked about indoctrination, that's a separate issue, but... In the day-to-day work, I think there's an epidemic going on between the lower levels to the upper levels. They're just pushing people along. Um, you know, I think political correctness gets involved in this where you don't want to offend somebody, and there's no real accountability. I mean, it all, it all comes down to accountability. Yes, unfortunately, it does come down you know, to accountability. And like I said, I mean, you got to have it because how do you not have accountability because things won't run right if you don't have some kind of accountability. But I think the accountability measures that we're using are wrong, because they're encouraging, you know, fudging, fudging the numbers, yeah. and, and pushing kids along. So they're encouraging that, which drives me crazy. Now, Neil, I just gave you that example of me walking into a classroom and knowing within five minutes. Well, let me bring this to the next level. Okay. I'm also on the, the NEASC, which is the N-E-A-S-K, that's the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. Right. And... Uh, I go off um, every year for the last several years. I'm going again in uh, a couple weeks from now. And uh, I, I, what I do is I, I, I walk into a high school with a team, and I spend, uh, you know, four or five days there studying that school nonstop. Okay. You know, we do long, long days. Uh, it could be anywhere from, let's say, 14 to, like, 16, 18-hour days studying that school. You know, I've done, I've done school in Connecticut, high school in Connecticut. I've done one in Massachusetts. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm heading up to Rhode Island to study a school there. And, you know, we have tons of different standards we look at, tons of different data points we look at. You know, we do a lot of different, like, you know, teamwork and going back and forth to discourse and arguing over this point and that point and saying, you know, is this a good school? Are they meeting this standard? Are they meeting that standard? And, of course, you get all the little substandards in there, right? So you got all this stuff going on. There's, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of data points that's going on in there. But I got to tell you now, every time I go to a high school to study it, what I do is I just tend to just spend some time, I just walk around the school. I just walk around the school and get a feel for the school. You know, I ask so many kids, how do you like, how do you like being a student here? Is this a good school? You know, and I walk around and, and I, I just, I get a feel for it. So we're kind of going back to that same, like, you know, that teachings and art and science. Well, I get a feel for it. And I, again, I can tell right. that if this is a good school for students, and, and I then, really so can tell. Let me ask you, if you're in the classroom and, you know, if it's all good, it's all good. But if there's a problem or you sense that, you know what, the teacher's not being as effective or they're just not, you know, it's like teaching is kind of like coaching and acting, you know, in, in some respects. I mean, uh, again, this is from an outsider's perspective. But the way I look at it is that you have really effective coaches that are leaders um, and they, uh, you know, command uh, attention, and they and they grasp um, the students' uh, attention, which is difficult, especially today with kids being so attached to their devices, um, which is, uh, I think, playing a part 
in their um, their learning and and how their attention uh, span is is shorter uh, today from uh, according to some you know uh, recent studies. But <laughs> yeah, so I mean that that's pretty that's pretty obvious. But you know there are some teachers that command the attention whether you know they make some jokes here and there or they just are very effective and. In their approach, if you notice there's a problem, or you say, you know what, this teacher's not really being as effective, or these students aren't uh, giving the teacher respect, what do you do? I mean, how does whatever report you give, does anything change? Well, if you're talking about, well, what I'm doing the NIAS is we don't give individual reports on individual teachers, but let's okay. just say we're talking about assistant principal or something for their individual school. Right. They come in and see that this teacher's not as effective as they could be, you know, maybe the teachers next door are more effective. So now, it comes down to, like, when you're an administrator, you're an educational leader. And you're not just an educational leader of the students, but you need to be an educational leader of the teachers. So now, this is where it gets tricky. You know, there's been people in the past... You are breaking up. I can't hear you. Yep, from uh, Tim Collins' book, From Good to Great. You know, get the right people on the bus, get the wrong people off the bus. Okay. Uh, you know, and it was and, like this whole, like, you know, business mentality of, uh, well, let's just fire the teachers. Well, the problem with that is that when you fire the, just fire the teachers, you bring down the teachers' morale. You know, and then all of a sudden the other teachers all start getting scared, and they can't, they can't teach effectively when they're scared. And, yet, and when they have low morale. So as I was saying earlier now, when you're an administrator, you know, you're an educational leader, not just of the students, but also of the teachers. So you have to kind of like be the teacher to the teacher. Now, you have to be in that classroom. You have to be pairing that teacher up with peers that are doing, or, you know, other colleagues that are doing well. You have to send that teacher out to, well, maybe a conference or something. You have to spend individual time with that. And then this is where, you know, maybe suggest books the teacher could read. You know, you're going to put the teacher through some kind of training to try to make them better. And now we've said this before. If that teacher's refusing to step up to the plate when you're trying to help them. Yeah. They need know, to be held they accountable. Need time to counsel them out. Yeah. You know, maybe they'd be better somewhere else if they're refusing to step up to the plate when you're asking them for help. Now, but that doesn't it, happen. It, it, it does happen. It, it does happen, believe it or not. Although maybe it should happen more in in some cases. Right. Now, now going with the professional development, you know, first of all, I think every teacher should take it upon themselves to be lifelong learners. I mean, you're asking your students to learn, but you should be a lifelong learner. And the same thing with the administrators. You're asking your teachers to learn and get better. The administrator should be a lifelong learner, should be an example to the teacher. But where it gets tricky is that you're trying to take, let's say, some expertise. You know, we're talking about professional development. Professional development is a very tricky thing. You know, we're trying to take some expertise from, let's say, an expert, and we're trying to take it from the expert, put it into the teacher, and then we're trying to take it from the teacher and put it into the students, and then have the teacher, the students do something or create something that shows some value or something, you know, something learned, a product, you know, whatever it is that shows that some learning took place and there was some value added. You know, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, but not that whole transfer expertise from expert to teacher to student to some kind of task, you know, that demonstrates you know, that shows evidence, demonstrates student learning. That's a very, very difficult thing. I wrote a book about a year ago on uh, evaluating professional development, you know, and um, I it was really excited. I really enjoyed writing that book, and I had some great ideas in there and some great ways, you know, to help teachers, 
uh, you know, and help those experts pass that that mm-hmm. knowledge, that expertise. But the thing is, that was just tipping the iceberg. You know, it's very, very complicated. If you look up, I mean, in the business world, you know, what if they spend seven hundred billion dollars a year or something crazy like that on professional development? The educational world has less money, so they spend less. But they do spend a lot of money on this professional development. So I think that, you know, and this would be good up with in regards to everything we've been saying tonight now, is that we need to get better at professional development. You know, we need to develop our adults or you know, our educators or teachers, you know, even our administrators, they get left out sometimes. But we need to get better at professional development. Right. And and then we really take away all excuses. You know, from any any adult that's not stepping up to the plate. It's like listen, you know, we've got a proven formula right here for you. You know, it has a little bit of science, has a little bit of art sure. to it. And uh, we're going to, you know, if you follow the steps and you, you know, give it the good old college try, you're going to be successful. You're going to be a good teacher. Listen, I'm going to be a good teacher. I agree with you. I completely. Daniel Blanchard on the program, uh, DanielBlanchard.com, Granddaddy Secrets, or excuse me, DanielBlanchard.net and GranddaddySecrets.com. No, I agree with you. I mean, listen, um, if everyone was held to a high standard, if you know how, I mean, listen, I'm going to make this comparison. You can agree with me or not, or not even comment. Uh, President Trump running is running the country like a business. That's been his platform, right? Well, how about we run education a little bit more business manner like where we keep people accountable if they don't perform you're you know you go through training but if you don't perform you're gone you know because these are people's futures at stake here and so that's just going to lead to i want to ask you about this because a report came out uh today uh i'm going to credit new york newsday for the article that i saw it in and they came up with the top um well as i guess it was a college board report that they were uh that they were writing about and they came up with the top um, AP exam performances. Um, your state of Connecticut is number three. Number one is Massachusetts, but yeah, Massachusetts number one, number two, Maryland, Connecticut three, Florida, that's a shocker, number four. I'm surprised about that. Number five, California, six, Virginia, seven is New York, eight, Colorado, nine, New Jersey, ten, Illinois. Um, well, then I look at the figures here, and what they are looking at is um, of public high school graduates scoring a three or higher on the advanced placement exam in 2016. The highest score, by the way, on the AP is a five. So three, four, or five, only 31% of Massachusetts public high school students, um, graduates, excuse me, scored a three or higher. Only 31%, and that's number one in the country. Doesn't that seem a little low? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, those numbers that there's, face value do look low. You're thinking only 31% of the kids, you know, reach that level of expertise. That does seem really low. You know, but, but you got to think about this. I mean, these are high school kids. You know, when you're talking AP, you're talking like, what, like college-level work? Yep. You're talking about something that's rigorous. You're talking about... It's a good challenge. Moving fast. You know, very, very challenging. So, I mean, you got to think about it. A lot of high school kids, they're not ready for that because they're well they're Kids. You know, they're not college kids. And the other concern that I have, you know, with this, and it may lead into a little, you know, maybe one of the reasons, or maybe another reason why the uh, the numbers are low, is that it seems like, you know, of late, that they're, they're offering these classes to more and more and more and more kids. Yeah. And I, I just don't see how more and more and more and more kids are, you know, of that level to be ready to be in that class. 
So it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, like, what, like what's going on? Why are more and more and more and more kids are being offered AP? You know, I would have never dreamed of uh, taking an AP class when I was going through school. Yes. You know, because I just wasn't, I wasn't at that level. Why not? But, I mean, if I was going through school but today... But they get pushed, you know, they, wanna, they yeah. want people to feel good about themselves and, oh, you can handle it, but then the challenge is too great. It, it may hurt their self-esteem in reality. It, it could. It could definitely hurt their self-esteem. And, and I've, I've heard schools that, you know, that have kind of encouraged kids to go in there, maybe even pushed them to go in there. And then once they're in there, and then the kids find out what they got into. And it's like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is way too hard. i got to get out of this. I've weird. heard of schools say, oh, no, no, you're not getting out. You know what I'm saying? No, you got to finish the semester or whatever. You can't drop out of this course. So I don't know, Neil. Maybe that goes back to kind of what we were talking about before with this whole you know, pressure about you got to have a like certain percentage of kids, you know, graduating, certain percentage of kids not dropping out of the AP classes, you know, certain percentage of kids getting a certain SAT score or whatever it is. It kind of comes down to, I guess, you know, the science muscling out the art of education again, and yeah. people may focus in too much on just numbers. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I liked about your assessment there, that you could walk into a classroom and know in five minutes whether or not that classroom is effective. I mean, listen, there's there's got to be common sense in this. I think we read too much into data. And the problem is, yeah, a lot of these kids are being pushed. I mean, I know from experience that um, there are some high schools that are very good that, you know, you have to have a certain grade to even be considered to take an AP course at the high school. And those are like the best high schools, you know, whether it be private or, or what have you in the country. And mostly private that do that. And then you have other schools that, um, you know, anyone could take it. And it's like, any, you know, uh, uh, you told me off air. Would you call it any person's AP stands yeah. for as a joke? Any person, AP? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, some teachers do joke about that. But that's a problem because if everyone's taking it when it's an advanced level course, they're not gaining much from it. No, especially if it's just way over them. You know, and I think, Neil, maybe it goes back to a little bit of that societal uh, trend that's going on where, you know, every kid gets a trophy. You know, you don't want <laughs> to hurt, hurt anybody's feelings, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So every kid gets a trophy. And I know recently, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I don't remember if he was a basketball player or a football player or whatever he was. But it was in the news back within the last year. Some father made his kid... Uh, Return the trophy. I remember that. Yes. Yeah, was that in it, Connecticut? That may have been in Connecticut. It might have been. I don't remember uh, all the details of it. Right. But he said something like, you know, no, uh, you didn't really just earn this trophy. I mean, you're not going to have like a participation trophy. No, it's a you great know, lesson. Like, no, that, but that like cheapens the whole trophy sort of thing. Yeah. You know, a participation trophy. It should be for like, you know, working really hard and maybe accomplishing something. You know, and then you get your trophies. But we're in this era. Now, well, every kid gets a trophy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, okay, you want to give them something for participation, give them a, a participation certificate, and, but give them a trophy for doing something special. Right. You know, that's, that's the era that I grew up in, and uh, I don't fully get the era now, and I think it's really cheapening. Uh, it, it's cheapening, first of all, effort. It, it's, it's coddling and enables kids. Yes, it's coddling, it's enabling, and it's cheapening the whole concept of effort. Yep. You know what I'm saying? A for effort, and so, crap. yeah. Yeah, and then they're in school, and what's effort? You know, what's that? Did you, 
got to work hard. Well, huh? They look at you like you're talking Greek or something So when you talk about working hard. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because I notice at my level, and I'm in my 20s, and I see people that are my age that are either recent graduates of college or in college, and they have no value of hard work. And to me, that's scary because this is apparently going to be the near future of our country. And, you know, I mean, personally, I was always brought up on uh, value of hard work and that you don't earn, you don't gain anything. You, you know, you earn it um, and you're only successful if you work hard. Um, and so there's there seems to be a, a rampant another, you know, epidemic with this young millennial age and younger where they're just given things. Um, and I guess it starts with the phones and all that crap. Um, as a teacher, you see it in schools. Do you have a lot of spoiled kids that are in there that just think that all I have to do is show up, I earn a participation grade that's 10%. You know, I mean, my best teachers never offer participation. If you don't show up for class, that's your problem. Yeah. I, I hear you. This is such a different world. Yeah. It's a very, very different world um, now. And, yeah, I mean, I, kids show up every day. Kids show up every single day, and they just don't get the concept, you know, of, of hard work. You know, I go out, and, uh, you know, they don't, they don't get the concept at all of intrinsic motivation. I mean, I go to games, and I have five kids. You know, they all play sports, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly, like, soccer games or football games or basketball games. I'm constantly hearing parents say, hey, if you score a goal, then I'll take you out for an ice cream. <laughs> and it's like, the ice, cream's the, the ice cream's the reward? Are you kidding me? Oh, scoring the goal is the reward. They're supposed to feel good about scoring the goal and doing something that's great enough to score a goal. Yep. That, that's the reward. But no, it's being taken away from them. Even the goal, you know, the effort behind the goal, the amazing behavior, performance behind the goal, the goal itself is being cheapened and it's being sold down the road for an ice cream, you know, and it drives me crazy when I when I hear stuff like that. Do you, do you ever that, intervene? You know, it's very difficult to intervene yeah, with, with uh, parents when they're in the middle of their kids. But I got to tell you, every now and then, like my kids will ask, and there's... Well, that's awesome. That's the goal. You know, that's the reward. Right. And they and they look at me like, "What are you talking about?" You know, my 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 friends get like ice cream on the way home, and I'm just like, I'm really I'm really afraid, you know, that this generation of adults, it, we're dropping the ball. We're kind of doing this to ourselves a I little know, bit. I know, I know, and I think it all has to do, by the way, and uh, you know, uh, I hate to get too political with you, but. Um, you know, my input on this is that everything is related. Everything happens for a reason is what I believe. And so, you know, with uh, a president now that tells it the way it is, it's very brash and bold, and people are put off by that, um, whether, you know, um, you believe that they should be or they should just grow up, um, you know, that's up to you. But in my opinion, I think that someone like President Trump is there shaking things up and telling it the way it is, the old-fashioned, listen, Grow up, work hard, and this is what we do, and just tell it the way it is. And then you have, you know, a generation of people who are protesting and crying, and it just – it really shows the real difference between generations. That you have one generation that's like, you know, I walked to school uphill both ways, you know, and then the other generation that wants, a, you know, a ride to the front door and, 
and uh, and that kind of um, if that's a good analogy for you. It is, Milton. I'm glad you brought that up because we are right now in uh, very difficult times and, and very confusing times. Right. And I see, Politically I see divisive. Trump, yeah, it's very, very divisive. And I see Trump is trying to do a few good things. And I'll come straight out and tell you that I didn't vote for Trump. Right. But, but I can see the value in some of the things that he's trying to do. Dan, you're breaking up again. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm sorry. That that same father uh, that didn't let his kid take that trophy home, that participation trophy or whatever it was, that same father, I'm sure, you know, there was a lot of people out there that probably said bad things about him. You know, and I I think that, you know, what he did, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it wasn't politically correct, (laughs) but you know what? I think maybe he taught his son a lesson. Right. You gotta work. Instead of you instead of work. coddling and and yeah, uh, instead enabling. of coddling, because we're doing way too much of that. Yeah. Yeah, we really are. And I got to tell you, I mean, you know, my kids complain sometimes about going to school. My students complain sometimes about going to school. Yeah, you know, when I look at them, you know, they complain. But they ask them to write a paragraph. And I sit down and I'm like, dude, it, it, it's like let's say five sentences. Just write five sentences. One, right. one paragraph. And they complain now. And they whine and moan, and some of them already refuse to do it. Some eventually do what they want. And but I you don't put up like, with that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, listen, if you lived 100 years ago, you right now, you wouldn't even be in school. You'd be in a factory somewhere working next to some little kid that had a couple fingers missing. And so you'd be like in a mine. That's a, a good mine one. Dig- I, I somewhere this was 100 years ago. Yeah. I go, or if you didn't win the lottery, the birth lottery, if you born here in the U.S., and you were born in some third world country somewhere else, you wouldn't be in school right now with a, sh- a shelter, you know, a roof over your head, a nice seat to sit in, all your fingers, you know, clean. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have any of that if you were born in a different place in the world. And I'm like, and you're, you're really, you're really going to moan over writing a paragraph? I mean, our kids, our kids have been coddled way too much. Mm-hmm. You know, they complain about the littlest thing. And they're clueless. They're clueless about what other kids in the world are going through and what just what American kids went through just a short time ago. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm worried. Yeah, I am too. I'm concerned. Uh, I mean, you know, in the same regard, I guess my competition is less, but <laughs> but I'm concerned with the future of the country. You Now, I, I think that's great. You also served our country um, in the Air Force and the Army, correct? That's correct now. And so, uh, honestly, if I were you, I would go with the veteran thing. You tell them some war stories. Tell them about, you know, people that you know that went off to war. And, uh, you know, I mean, I interviewed a combat veteran on my show last week, and you hear about what he went through and PTSD and that he, you know, was thinking about killing himself. Well, you know, if people just heard that, maybe these kids would kind of get it a little bit that they're very fortunate to be where they are. They're very, very fortunate now, and i got to tell you, I mean, we didn't have it as easy as today's kids, but I'll tell you something that I, I'll never forget this lesson I learned in the military. I remember, you know, we had these, these cargo pockets, our pants had these little side pockets, and in that we had our book. So, I mean, the military, we just didn't shoot guns the whole day. We also had to, like, study. So I remember we were, you know, doing a force march. We had our backpacks on, rucksacks on. You know, we had our M16A2s with us. Uh, eventually, we would trade them off for the A1s. And I remember, like, the drill sergeant all day long would be asking us questions. And if, if you got three questions wrong in a row, right, 
he'd put you down in the push-up position and say, now take the book out of your pocket and find the right answer. And you'd stay there in the push-up position hmm. and, when then, and then go to one hand while you try to flip the page of your book and then go back to two hands. Your arms would be shaking. You'd be flipping through the book. And you would stay there until you found the answer that that drill sergeant wanted. And I remember doing that, and I remember thinking, holy cow, my teachers never did this to me. You know, my <laughs> parents never did this to me. And I, and, I, and I just couldn't help now but think how lucky I was. And I was like, you know what? Oh, maybe every, maybe every kid out there should go through at least basic training so they can realize how lucky they've been, That's you know, with their idea. teachers and parents. You know, how lucky they've been. But... As of right now, we don't have anything like that. No, I don't know if anything like that ever happened. And today's kids are clueless about how lucky they are. Yeah, I mean, look at the fact that people that are my age, actually younger, um, the combat veteran that I interviewed last week, he served at, he was in combat in Grenada at 19 years old, standing a post. Now, I cannot picture 19 year olds. Men or women today, anybody, I cannot picture a 19-year-old that I see, you know, on a college campus standing a post. I'd be scared if they were protecting our freedom. (laughs) I hear you. I remember I've stood a lot of posts in my day, and I got to tell you now, my bunkmate, my bunkmate, I remember at 19 years old, he spent three months hiding, or his post, I guess you could say, was in the sewers of Panama. Oh. You know, when we were going through that conflict in Panama. Sure. Uh, it, it, could you imagine that? Coming out, he came out of those sewers three months later sick. Yes. You know, and he had, uh, he had to get well from that. But, uh, yeah, could you imagine you know, some of these college kids today, these 19-year-old kids today? The same ones told, who are, you know, wearing these outrageous, you know, hats. I can't even say what they are. And the ones that are uh, saying, not my present. Yeah, they're, they protect our country. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> It's a, it's. I'll tell you that the military is a different ball game. I know. They they make you learn fast. Those are real men and women there. Yeah, that's where I was going next, Neil. And they turn you into a a real man and a real woman quickly. You know, and and if you don't keep up, you know they can kick you out. You know they won't keep you around if you don't keep up. No, and if only I I just wish that more people talk the way you are. I mean, I think that the part of the reason why people are so put off by our president now is that they're just not being used to, you know, someone telling it the way it is and being frank and sticking up for himself and, and for the country. I mean, I've seen too many people, you know, just, oh, well, that's the way it is. All right. Or, you know, this person isn't, uh, isn't doing well in math. Oh, oh, well, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. No, you, you work hard. You, you, if you have a goal, or you're not doing well in something, you work hard towards it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny now. I, I had somebody today, I, 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 my car needed some uh, some work on the way home. My windshield wiper fluid thing wasn't working. So I stopped home and, uh, and I got that thing fixed. And I'm sitting there talking to the mechanic. And the mechanic is, you know, finds out I'm a school teacher, starts asking me about today's kids, this and that. And, um, you know, start saying, well, you know, well, what's what's the answer? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't exactly know what the answer is. Sounds like my question. You know, what, what, he's like, what's made kids like soft and lazy and all mm-hmm. that? And I'm going, well, you know, and he's asking me, you know, what, what subject you taught? I special ed and history, this and that. 
And I, and I said, listen, I go, you know, you want to know something? I said, I said, here's something I do know. I said, a hundred years ago, I go, when people came to this country, they weren't lazy. You know what I'm saying? I go, and, the, and, the, and this is, it was, it was scary because in those days you didn't have safety nets. And in those days, if you were lazy, then you just might die if you were lazy. You know what I'm saying? You had, you didn't have choice. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I would never take away the safety nets for people. You know, I, I don't want anybody dying or anybody getting hurt. But th there is something to be said about not giving people a choice to be lazy. You know what I'm saying? It was uh, people having something real to lose if they're lazy. You know what I'm saying? So yep. you get those people out there, you get them hustling. Sometimes a little fair is good. You know, like you're, 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 you're running scared because you don't want to fail. You know, because failure is painful. You know, uh, so somehow we got to get back to that where failure is painful. And maybe you are running scared a little bit. Builds character, though. You're not going to be lazy. No. You're not going to be lazy. And failure's fine. I mean, you don't want the big failures, but failure's okay. I mean, it builds character. I don't think uh, a lot of people say you can't be successful unless you fail. I mean, it's all about getting out there and getting experience in anything in life. You know, whether we're talking about jobs or school, even relationships, and you don't fail, you don't learn. Absolutely. Um, I agree totally now. All right, so Dana Blanchard, by the way, uh, you have all these titles. Um, I didn't mention American Federation of Teachers. You are a double U.S. veteran, as uh, we talked about a little while ago, um, and you also um, are an inner-city school teacher in Connecticut, and we always appreciate you coming on. Um, granddaddysecrets.com, danielblanchard.net. Um, Mr. Blanchard, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about all these important subjects and going a little bit off topic, but very important because, um, you know, listen, I'm, wor I'm worried about the future of the country and, and we could just, I think the more we talk about it, hopefully uh, we influence somebody to get with the program, you know? Hey, any little thing we can do to help right now? You got it. As always, you're welcome to come on, all right? All right, thank you again. All right, wow, what a show today. Uh, the Neely Crusoe Show podcast on Wednesday here. Um, we will be back with you, as always, Thursday and Friday to wrap up the work week. And Sunday is the Neely Crusoe Show, the live streaming show on NeelyCrusoe.com at 12 noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific time. We're here for you doing our part to make America great again. And we hope you join us tomorrow. Uh, always a big show. Thanks to Daniel Blanchard. Uh, the inner city school teacher, WS veteran, he does tremendous work, and uh, we're fortunate to have frequent guests on the podcast, people who are so knowledgeable in their field, and Dan is one of those guys. He knows what he's talking about, and listen, we need to reform this educational system, but it's deep-rooted. It really is, and it has a lot to do with this uh, entitled mentality uh, that kids are growing up with today. And uh, so anyway, we're doing our part here. We hope you go out and do your part to make America great again. And we'll see you right back here on iTunes and NeilAcrusoe.com Thursday on the podcast. God bless America. The Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast is a production of Crusoe Enterprises. Engaging, informing, and entertaining. Passion-driven, factual content that makes a difference following Neil A. Crusoe on social media. And log on to NeilAcrusoe.com to sign up for Crusoe's comments, newsletters, and be the first to know.